Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenas, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. As Chauncey has mentioned a couple of times, we're going to take several weeks to study the book of Daniel. Chauncey and I will be tag-teaming, so I'm going to take the odd chapters. He's going to take the even chapters on Sunday mornings, and it'll be a rich time 
This is a book which really has the potential to strengthen God's people with courage. People of God, we're forgiven. And we're a people of hope. And when we really understand the gospel of grace, we're called to live as a people of courageous faith and a people of conviction who can have joy and do what's right even when times are hard. So this is a book to help us with that. And I want to ask you to pray with me one more time before we start digging in. Would you just bow your heads? I'll be quiet for a moment. I just want to ask you where you are to begin calling out to the Lord that he will use today and the next several weeks to strengthen us for courageous, persevering faith. Our Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for loving us first. We thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to die on the cross for our sins and rise so that we can have access to you by grace. So in the name of Jesus, we come to you humbly but boldly now, saying, would you forgive us and would you teach us and would you strengthen us? I ask for your help today, Lord, that every word I speak would be true and would be helpful to my brothers and sisters, and would be glorifying to you. Would you give us minds that are attentive and hearts that are receptive to your word? Would you help us now? Your, your word has already been inspired by your, your Holy Spirit. It's already living and active. But would you help us now by the Spirit to be receptive to what you want to do with us, that you would make us strong in our faith? In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, this book begins in exile. Exile is not a fun word. Everybody say exile. This means God's people who are called by his name are being conquered by their enemies. They're being oppressed. They're being carried away to a foreign land. Now, it wasn't too long ago that we spent quite a while studying the book of Exodus. God's people were in a foreign land being oppressed. And God, the deliverer, rescued them through the hand of his servant Moses and brought them out of their slavery and oppression into freedom and joy and gave them the promised land. But he told them, if you'll be faithful and keep my covenant, then you will flourish here. But if you rebel against me, I'm going to discipline you and you're going to be sent out into exile. But then if you'll repent, I'm going to bring you back home. And now we're seeing that played out. Look with me again at the first two verses of our text. And the third year... Of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, we can read those verses real quick and skip past them. But some of the things that are said here are really big things. First of all, I want you to notice What these verses tell us about the sovereignty of God. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we just mean that God is the king above all kings. He's the power above all power. So everybody say, God is the king. And what's important to notice is that the circumstances described here involve Nebuchadnezzar, a powerful, pagan, oppressive conqueror, defeating the people of Israel. But the text does not say the people were too weak and so the strong human ruler came and conquered them. Look what it says. The Lord 
gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So who's in charge here? Is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it the Lord? The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is in charge. What we are seeing here is the disciplinary, purifying grace of God. Now, that's a phrase that may sound self-contradictory to some of us. We don't like to think of disciplinary and grace as going together, right? When we pray for grace, sometimes we're praying, God, don't discipline me. We think of grace as being rescued from discipline. But we got to remember that the Bible has a more nuanced view of this matter. Think about Hebrews chapter 12. You remember what Hebrews 12 tells us about God's love and his discipline? If you've got your Bible, you can flip over. I'm going to read you verses 5 and 6. In Hebrews chapter 12, Christians are being reminded of God's grace. And then in that context, we read these words. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, you've been adopted into his family. You're a son or a daughter of God. So everybody say, we're God's kids. God is a good, loving parent, though, which means he doesn't just let us continue in cycles of self-destructive behavior. Some of us in the room are parents, and we know that if you just let your two-year-old run wild and do whatever your two-year-old wants, it's not going to be good for anybody. Least of all the two-year-old who will self-destruct in a short period of time. So you've got to have boundaries. You've got to have discipline. And listen to what it says. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is one other reminder in scripture that God's love is something deeper than what we sometimes mean when we talk about love. God's love can be a little bit scary because God's love isn't just committed to my comfort in this moment. God's love is committed to my eternal joy. Did you hear that? God's love isn't just committed to keeping you comfortable in the moment. God's love is committed to your eternal joy. Now, that's good. That's really good news. The problem is sometimes my eternal joy involves me being very uncomfortable right now. See, God's love is unconditional in the sense that. If we've trusted in Christ, then we can be absolutely sure the covenant relationship we have with God is unbreakable. It started when God took the initiative with us to choose us by grace in Christ Jesus. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So did we do anything to earn God's love? No. And do we have to do anything to sustain God's love? No. So in that sense, God's love is unconditional. But that does not mean that God's love is an unconditional affirmation of everything that I do. Because often we think and say and do things that are self-destructive, don't we? And when we rebel against God and when we hurt other people and when we act foolishly, not only do we self-destruct, but we hurt other people. And so the prophets of Israel had warned Israel for years and generations, you need to turn from idolatry. You need to stop oppressing the poor and the widow and the fatherless and the immigrant in your midst. You need to love God with all your heart. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. If you persist in evil, God's going to discipline you. So that's what happens right here in verse 2 of Daniel 1. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. We see God's disciplinary grace in action, which is committed to purifying 
his people, to making them holy. But also, it's important to note, we see God's gentle, preserving grace in action. Because even as they're going off into exile, the story of Daniel tells us that God is not abandoning his people. God's going with them into exile. God's going to protect them in exile. God is near to them, even in their experience of being disciplined. So here we have a sovereign and holy and loving God, which is doing good for his people. That's the divine reality here. But while we're looking at the divine reality, we also got to look at the human reality. It's important to take both of those into account. And when we look at world events, we got to recognize God is sovereignly at work in world events, often in ways that we cannot understand. But that doesn't mean there's not human agents doing evil stuff. I want you to think about something that Joseph said. Remember in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph? Joseph was a righteous man. His brothers were jealous of him. They hated him. They sold him into slavery. He got falsely accused over and over again. He had a really hard life for a really long time. And then eventually God exalted him to be second in command in Egypt. And then when the brothers who sold him into slavery came and were at his mercy and he could have had revenge, he said this to them. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Both of those, the human reality and the divine reality, both need to be taken into account. Nebuchadnezzar does not have benevolent intentions in this story. He's not a good guy. And as a matter of fact, he's going to be disciplined by God as the story progresses, you will see. But God, in his sovereign grace and wisdom, is able to work all things according to the counsel of his will, even the evil choices of human beings. Isn't that wonderful news? What this means is just what I got taught to teach, sing in Sunday school class as a kid. You remember the little song? He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 That's what the song says over and over. You and me, brother in his hands. You and me, sister in his hands. What that means is no matter how much the darkness seems to prevail, King Jesus is going to win. And he's going to work all things according to his good. But we do need to look at Nebuchadnezzar for a second. Nebuchadnezzar is a politically and culturally savvy oppressor and conqueror. He knows how to control people. And Nebuchadnezzar, historically, we know that one of his strategies for control was to give people a little bit of freedom. Let them hang on to a little bit of their identity so they don't totally rebel, but then pressure them to assimilate. So one of the things this looked like, if Nebuchadnezzar conquered your tribe or your community and you had your little tribal gods, Nebuchadnezzar would say, you could keep worshiping them. That's fine. You just got to worship the gods of Babylon, too. And that was a pretty effective strategy most of the time. Because people said, OK, he's letting us worship our gods. That's fine. But then, OK, we've got to worship the gods of Babylon. That's reasonable. And if he gets them to worship the gods of Babylon, now he's got them under his control. That was Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. He, he also forces them to assimilate by doing stuff like what we see in this text. He renames people. He re-educates people so that they'll leave behind their own cultural values and embrace the cultural values of his empire. This is just the logic of colonialism, imperialism. We've got to control. We've got to manipulate So Nebuchadnezzar, in this story, is doing the same policy that he always does. 
which is to say to people, okay, I'll give you a little bit of freedom. I'll give you a little bit of privilege now that I've conquered you to keep you from totally rebelling. But you got to take the names I give you. You got to wear the clothes I give you. You got to get the education I give you. And you've got to worship our gods alongside your God. I said that this policy usually works until this story, because in this story, Nebuchadnezzar meets the Jews. And the Jews are a bold and resilient people who refuse to worship anybody but the one true God. More importantly, Nebuchadnezzar meets the one true God. Because the God of Israel is not just a tribal deity. He's not just some little spirit trying to keep people enslaved to fear. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the God worshipped by Daniel and his friends is the God who appeared in Jesus Christ, the God we just sung to when we said blessed Trinity, God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He is the creator and the king of the whole world, which means Nebuchadnezzar cannot control him. And that's going to be one of the main themes of this book. Nebuchadnezzar is one side of this human reality. The flip side of the human reality is God's people. Daniel and his friends, and they are suffering Little things like he took them back to Babylon. It only takes a second to read those words, but let's think about it. Daniel and his friends had to walk 500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon on foot in harsh conditions. To put that in perspective, there's 200 miles between Oklahoma City and Dallas. So imagine you had to walk to Dallas and then walk back. And then walk another hundred miles through Oklahoma weather. Okay? People die. People die. This is colonial oppression. We, if, if we know our history in Oklahoma, we know about this, don't we? We know about the Trail of Tears. We know about education as weaponized, trying to k- kill and control people. So that's like Trail of Tears level of oppression. And so now these people are forced to go 500 miles, and then when they get there, Nebuchadnezzar um, says, bring to me the most impressive, most educated, most good-looking Hebrews so I can use them. And so he ends up picking these friends, Daniel and his buddies, and he gives them positions of privilege, but with their position of privilege comes pressure to conform. By the way, one of the things we're going to see as we read through this book, is that with privilege often comes pressure to conform, but the people who know their God don't do it. I love Daniel 11.32. It's talking about a different oppressive ruler, but it says that when this ruler comes to town, he, with flattery, he won over the people who were not faithful to the covenant. But it says, but the people who knew their Lord, who knew their God, stood firm and took action. So these people are pressured now to conform And in particular, I want to pay attention to the renaming. Look with me at verse 7. The chief of the eunuchs who works for Nebuchadnezzar gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, by renaming them, Nebuchadnezzar is asserting his sovereignty over them. He's saying, you're mine now. I control your identity I control what other people are going to call you and how other people are going to see you. And I'm going to get inside your own head. I'm going to control how you see yourself. And to understand fully what's at stake, we've got to understand the meaning of these names. Daniel 
means God is judge. But Nebuchadnezzar wants to change Daniel's name to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, which is another name for Marduk, God of Babylon. Bel protects his life. So Daniel's name literally means God is judge. He's the king. He's in control. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, your new identity is that my God protects your life. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. The Lord, God of Israel, the true God shows grace. And Nebuchadnezzar changes his name to Shadrach, which means command of Aku, who's the Sumerian moon god. So his name literally means God shows grace. God is merciful. God is kind. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, your new name means you are under the command of my moon god. Mishael, his name means who is what God is. Isn't that a great name? There's no one like the Lord. Everybody say, God is holy. There's no one as powerful and as loving and as wise as the true God. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, Meshach means who is what Aku is. That's that moon god again. Just trying to change his identity. Azariah means the Lord helps. Azariah is a good name, don't you agree? Austin and Lydia. Azariah means the Lord helps. And his name gets changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego or Nabu, who's a Babylonian god of wisdom. So all of these guys, by changing their names, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm going to change your identity. And who you are is not defined anymore by your relationship to your God. It's defined by my gods, and I get to dictate that. He's going to try to control them. Guess what, friends? It's not going to work. It's not going to work because their relationship with God is stronger with that. Now, I got to say, this is the reality of exile. This is the harsh reality of exile. And there's many people in this room who can identify at a cultural level or a personal level with some of what's talking about being talked about right here. Because there's a lot of people in this room who one way or another, you've experienced being culturally marginalized. You've experienced the pressure to assimilate, whether it's because your ancestors were brought over on slave ships or because they were indigenous peoples that were oppressed or because your people came here looking for opportunity, educational, economic opportunity, and you face depression. So some of you, I know this is probably resonating at a deep cultural and personal level right now. And I want to tell you, this story of Daniel is a good one for you to think about and identify with, because this is about God's people facing that pressure really well. But at another level, a spiritual level, every Christian can identify with Daniel and his friends, because the Bible teaches that every single Christian is an exile on the earth. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you got your Bible, you might flip over there. Peter frequently refers to Christians as exiles or sojourners, which means our home is not here. Let me just read you 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Do you see that? Everybody might want to circle that word exiles in your Bible, 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what Peter is saying here is that every Christian has as part of her identity this reality that this is not our ultimate home. Our home is in heaven. So everybody say we are exiles. And part of what it means to be a Christian is we've got to learn how to live faithfully as residents 
responsible residence in a place that is not our ultimate home. We live here and we love our neighbors here and we seek to do good here and to glorify God here. But our home is in heaven and our home. This is this world is not enough like our home, is it? In our home, God is always glorified. In our home, everybody loves each other, no matter what your ethnicity or your cultural background is. In our home, Jesus wipes tears from every eye. In our home, all the trauma and all the stuff that has wounded you in your life will not get the last word. God will heal every wound. That's our home. So we have different values as citizens of the kingdom of God. And yet we've got to learn how to live here and to do good here in a way that points people to the reality of heaven. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So this is a text which is going to teach us about how to do that. And today we're introducing this sermon series. It's called Faithfulness in Exile. But today we're talking about the theme, two kinds of faithfulness. Everybody hold up two fingers for a second. Say two kinds of faithfulness. Because what we can see here already in chapter one that we're going to keep seeing is that in the book of Daniel, we see faithfulness at two levels. Faithfulness at the human level which we can learn to imitate, but the bigger deal is faithfulness at the divine level, the faithfulness of God. And that's where our real hope comes from in this book. At the human level, what does faithfulness look like? We've got to ask. At the human level, we can look at Daniel and his friends and say, they set a great example for us as Christians who are exiles. We can imitate them. And I'm I'm going to give you just a short description right here. You might want to jot this down if you're a note taker. Just to think about as you read the book on the human level, faithfulness in exile looks like weak, vulnerable people, meaning you and me. Regular people. Anybody ever like look at the news and feel overwhelmed that you don't have power to change all this? Matter of fact, anybody ever just drive around in Oklahoma City and talk to people about their pain and think I want to help, but I feel powerless. Well, that's often what Daniel and his friends felt like. Human, at the human level, faithfulness looks like weak, vulnerable people living with hope, courage, and wisdom. In the midst of powerful forces of evil, because they know that their good God is king over all earthly powers. That's what it looks like at the human level. Weak people, vulnerable people like us, live with hope. Everybody say hope. Everybody say courage. Everybody say wisdom. In the midst of powerful forces of evil, because they know that their God is the king over all earthly powers. But then we got to look at the higher level, and that's where this gets exciting. At the higher level, faithfulness in exile looks like God's almighty love being with his people, protecting them, preserving them, sustaining them, teaching them even through their pain and exalting them to positions of influence even within this pagan culture so that they can use uh, their influence for, the, for good, to bring good into the world. Until God ultimately intervenes to, to make everything right in history. So let's look at those in, for a few minutes in a little bit more detail, and then we're going to wrap up today and take the Lord's Supper. What can we learn from chapter 1 about faithfulness at the human level? How do we live faithful as disciples of Jesus? First of all, what I want you to see is Daniel already here is showing us that he has courage to risk his life in order to honor God. Now, here's something I want you to think about. Daniel is known for his integrity, but in a broken world, if you're living in exile, as every Christians are, you can't have integrity unless you have courage. 
Because living with integrity, being faithful to your spiritual convictions, rooted in Jesus Christ and rooted in the word of God, might cost you everything. So it requires courage. Look with me real quick at verse 8. It says, Daniel resolved. That's a good word. You might underline that word. Everybody say resolved. We need more resolve, Christians, today. We need more resolve to say we're going to live according to the Bible, not according to cultural pressures. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, here's what's at stake. Daniel, throughout this story, has to have discernment. When do I go along with what Nebuchadnezzar says and when do I resist? Where do I draw the line? Daniel is willing to let Nebuchadnezzar call him an idolatrous name. Daniel is willing to read the books that the pagans wrote. That's his new job, is to become a scholar in pagan literature. Daniel is willing to do a lot of things, but he won't defile himself spiritually. And the food that Nebuchadnezzar gives to Daniel to eat would have been a violation of the Mosaic Covenant. He would have had to eat unclean food. He would have been unfaithful to God. Not only that, but this food was almost certainly used as part of idol worship in Babylon. So as he's praying and discerning, what do I do? He says, I've got to draw a line here. Some of us just need to stop and identify with this. Don't you know the struggle when you're at work or when you're hanging out with your friends or when you go to school, if you're in school, that sometimes there's a lot of pressures on you and you don't know as a Christian, when do I go along and when do I say no? When do I just remain quiet? When do I openly criticize evil as I see it? Isn't that a hard thing to do? But Daniel prays and Daniel discerns and with the help of God, he says, I'm going to draw a line here. But look, look at what we see next. This is a risky move. Daniel could get killed for this. You need to understand. He just got carried off into exile. He just walked 500 miles. He has no power in this situation. And they said, eat the king's food. It's a great privilege. And he says, no, I don't want to eat the king's food. That can get you beaten. That can get you killed. But not only do we see the courage of Daniel, we see his wisdom, prudence, and discretion. Friends, I need you to listen to this. Sometimes in our culture, Christians don't have enough courage. Sometimes we have enough courage, but we're not too smart. Amen. Sometimes we just, we're going to say the truth. And we're going to go out in a blaze of glory on day one. Daniel could have stood up at this moment and says, no, Nebuchadnezzar is an oppressor. I don't want to have anything to do with what he says. And he would have died a glorious death. And that would have been the end of the book of Daniel. Right. We never would have got the lion, the lion's den story. That's behind me on this screen. Daniel is not only courageous, but he's wise. He's discerning. He's prudent. And so when the chief of the eunuch says, I don't know about this, because if. You eat the other food and you don't look as good. The king might get mad at me. And look at how Daniel responds in verse 11. Uh, Verse 12. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat water and to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he's prudent. And instead of just rebelling, he goes to his shift manager. Some of y'all got some problems at work. You need to learn some stuff from Daniel. You went out trying to be courageous, and then you just went out. You got fired. Now we're praying for you to have a new job. You spoke truth to power, and now you're unemployed, right? Daniel goes to his shift manager and says, here's an idea. Let's try it out. What do you think? 
He's got prudence. He's got discretion. He becomes incredibly well known for this. As a matter of fact, just drop your eyes down to verse 19. And the king spoke with Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. He spoke with them and among, I'm sorry, he, he spoke with, with all the, the wise men. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Do you see that? They had a spirit of wisdom and of excellence, so they stood before the king. That's what verse 20 says. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Proverbs says, if you see a man who's excellent in the work of his hands, he'll stand before kings, not obscure men. And here we see that being played out. Listen, Christians, if you want to learn how to live well in exile, you need to learn this lesson. When I used to teach at OU, I would have students who knew I was a Christian come talk to me about, hey, listen, I've got all these classes with professors that aren't Christians, and I want to share the gospel with them, and I don't know how to do it. So they assigned me this paper, and I wrote this paper where I told my testimony, and I shared Bible verses, and they just gave me the F on this paper, and I feel like I'm being persecuted. And I asked them, what was the paper supposed to be about? Right? And uh, how many times have you missed class? It's like, well... And I'll ask him questions about how, how many times you've been to the office hours to, to get help with your work. Are you doing your homework? And people start saying, no, I think you're missing the point. I am being persecuted. You're missing the point, right? And what I'll tell them is, listen, if you want influence, then you need to set a standard for excellence. At your workplace, I know, I've known Christians who say they're getting persecuted because they tell me not to share my faith at the workplace. Tell me to get back to work. Well, I might have been with you until you got to that second part. Tell you to get back to work. You're getting paid to work. If you want influence, you've got to set a standard for excellence. And listen, the people of God have an advantage here because our God is a God of wisdom and excellence, isn't he? Now, this doesn't mean you've got to be the smartest or the most talented in your workplace, but it does mean you've got to do what Paul teaches us to do when he says, work with all your heart as if you're doing it for Jesus. So whether you're moving boxes in a warehouse, whether you're filling up somebody's cup of coffee, or whether you're preparing a, a classroom lesson, or whatever you may be doing at your job, cooking a burger, whatever it is, do it for Jesus. Do it to the best of your ability. Do it with wisdom and excellence, and now you get the influence to point people towards Christ. Amen? You get more amens when you talk about courageously speaking truth to power than you do when you talk about doing your homework. But guys, we've got to tell both sides of the story. More importantly, let's finish today recognizing what we can learn about God and his faithfulness in Daniel chapter 1. First of all, just listen to this lesson. Some of you right now are going through a season of discipline at the hand of God. Some of you are being chastised by the Lord for your sin. And in those moments, it can be easy to despair, to lose hope. In those moments, it can also be easy to start shaking your fist and blaming everybody else for mistakes that you've made. But I want to encourage you not to do either one of those things. I want to encourage you to remember the lesson of Hebrews 12 and of the book of Daniel. God disciplines those whom he loves. And he is with you in the season of discipline. Don't run away from God. Run to God in this season. Run to the cross of Jesus Christ where you find God loving you enough to give his life for you and say, Lord, thank you that you love me enough to save me. And thank you that you love me enough not only to forgive me, but to teach me and to make me holy so that I can be happy 
forever. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. But second of all, I want to say. Some of us here are suffering not because God's disciplining us, but we're suffering because of the sins of other people. And that's actually the situation of Daniel and his friends. They weren't the ones rebelling against God to bring about this discipline. Jehoiakim was, but not Daniel, not his friends. So they are innocent sufferers. Don't you know that in a world that's as broken as this world, uh, there's a whole lot of sufferers who are just innocent sufferers? And if powerful people choose to do evil, lots of people get hurt. So there's some of us in here that are going through that. And I just want to encourage you from this story. If you are suffering for the sins of others, you need to know also that God is with you in this pain. He is able to bring good things out of your suffering. And make no mistake, God will vindicate his servants. He will lift you up and he will use you to accomplish his purposes as we're going to see. Just start. We're going to see a lot more of this as we get through Daniel. But just just look for a, at a few verses where we see this already in chapter one. Verse nine. Why did the chief of the eunuchs listen to Daniel? Why did he not kill Daniel when Daniel was courageous? Verse nine says God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. He was able to have influence because God gave it to him. Skip down to verse 17. Why, why did he work with wisdom and excellence in a way that gave him influence before the pagan king? It says, as for the youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. See, if you walk with God and you walk with humility and you walk with obedience and you try to walk with excellence, God is able to give you grace and favor so that you can have influence that you use for his glory and for the good of other people. Isn't that good news? So saints, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper today, I just want to say there are times in life where we're going to go through experiences that make us feel probably how Daniel and his friends felt when they were walking to Babylon. Namely, we're going to feel like the forces of evil are winning in the world. The forces of chaos are too big for us to deal with. And we need to remember Jesus is on a throne above the waters. He's on a throne above the forces of chaos. Do you remember how easily Jesus calmed that storm and that little story in the Gospels? Peace be still. And the chaos was still. Jesus is on a throne. He's sovereign. He's holy. That doesn't mean that there will be no suffering. He might save you from the furnace or like Daniel's friends in in a couple of weeks, he might save you through the furnace of affliction. But either way, he's on the throne so you can trust in Jesus and you can have hope that Jesus is going to set all things right. And that hope can give you courage to live with love, justice and wisdom, even in the midst of hard times. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our father in heaven, we thank you for this message. And we just praise you right now for the truth that Jesus is the king. That King Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And that Jesus gets the last word in human history. We praise you for that reality. And I want to pray that you would make us a people who believe the gospel enough. That we will not despair when times are hard. And we will not be conformed to the pattern of the world. But with courage and with hope we will do good. Even in the midst of cultural opposition. We won't be overcome by evil, but we'll overcome evil with good. 
I pray that you would also make us a people who learn to walk in wisdom and in excellence so that we'll gain an influence that we can then steward for your glory. For all of this, we pray not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.